Welcome to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by Susan Pendergrass, David Stokes, and Abigail Wagner, our one of our Show Me Institute summer, summer interns. Abigail, welcome to the uh, podcast. You want to tell listeners just a, a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. So during the school year, I am, well, this upcoming school year, I will be a sophomore at Hillsdale College. That's in Hillsdale, Michigan. Um, at the Show Me Institute so far, I have been working on some data entry projects, a couple of document reviews for some of the policy staff, and then I've had a couple blog posts published also uh, that are up on the website. And now you can add podcast guest. And now, yeah, that. now I'm a podcast guest. Perfect. Uh, Susan, this week was a SCOTUS decision week. Earlier this week, several decisions were handed down, and one of them had to do with First Amendment and religious education. What did we find out? Yeah, this has been an open question, I suppose, or something that seems to have been bothering folks for quite a while. But quite a few states, including Missouri, have um, created and in some cases implemented scholarship programs for students who qualify to receive publicly funded or tax credit funded scholarships to use for private schools. And um, Maine, a case was uh, ruled on this this week, uh, a case in Maine, uh, I believe it's Carson versus Macon. And Maine has had a basically a town tuitioning program like Vermont has for uh, since the beginning of time, since the 1800s, late 1700s, for um, small school districts that don't wanna build and operate a high school, they just simply pay tuition for their high school students to go to private schools. It's been very open and you, uh, they've included uh, religious private schools for the length of the program until the early 80s when all of a sudden Maine decided that these funds could not be used to go to a religious school, only a secular school. And that the case uh, took up that question, was Maine allowed to do that? And it's similar to the case that was, um, well, last year there was a case in Montana, Espinosa, or two years ago, Espinosa versus Montana, and there was a case in Missouri uh, regarding Trinity Lutheran Church preschool, where they applied for a federal grant program to put basically rubber mulch on their playground, and they were excluded because they were religious. And the same was true in the Espinosa versus Montana case, where the Espinosa family wanted to use the Montana publicly funded scholarships to send their children, it was actually a single mom, to send her daughters to a religious private school. And the finding basically says, once the public funds are given to the parent, the state has no control over the choice that parent makes. And by allowing parents or by allowing religious schools to participate in the program and allowing parents to choose whatever they wanna choose, religious or non-religious, the state is in no way establishing a church. Uh, People who are against scholarship programs in general, the typical uh, education bureaucracy, the teachers unions, they wanna see the programs go away. So they say that this violates separation of church and state. And the Supreme Court uh, found it uh, found again for the third time in just five or six years, it does not violate separation of church uh, church and state. And in fact, it is um, a violation of the first amendment because uh, religious school, you can't be excluded just because you make a religious choice. So once again, uh, it has upheld the sort of viability of these programs and religious schools to participate. And the Missouri Empowerment Scholarship Program is just getting ramped up. Uh, Students can just begin to apply 
taxpayers can just begin to donate money and take a 100% tax credit for the program. And the education assistance organizations, they're called EAOs, six have been certified. And all six of them serve religious private schools and non-religious private schools and homeschoolers to participate with the uh, scholarship granting. And and so they are so a couple of archdiocese and Orthodox Jewish program have become certified EAOs. So this just confirms that it's perfectly constitutional for parents to choose religious private schools when they receive these scholarships. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is one of the reasons that we were watching for this decision is that is something that we heard during the process of setting up the empowerment scholarship program. Yeah. What was going was the this criticism. So I don't know if it'll put it to rest or put it into it, but at least, like you said, for the third time, we uh, hmm. we have a court ruling that says, uh, yeah, yeah it's, there were some like uh, breathless articles in the Casey Star and the Springfield News Leader that, you know, the program is going to be run into the ground because it was going to be all religious schools and they are trying to, you know, dismantle public education. The same thing that uh, are, is always trotted out by folks who just don't like letting parents choose where their kids go to school. They'd rather keep them captive in the school that's associated with their home address and they just don't like them. And so it's kind of like saying, you know, um, if a, a language immersion school, let's like say a French immersion school went to participate and then uh, it was brought to court by someone who said, no, English is the official language of the United States. Well, by saying that uh, you know, you can't have religious schools. They're not establishing that there is an official religion of the United States. They're just saying that parents are free to choose these programs. And I think it's great. Parents love these programs. I've had several people contact me about how to sign up for the program in Missouri. And Missouri students are going to be able to get up to $6,400. You don't have to use it for private school tuition. You could use it to homeschool. You could use it for tutoring or um, educational services or equipment if you want to homeschool, but you can use it for private school tuition and people love it. 44 states now have similar programs and it's only growing. So just one less hurdle is in the way of getting these programs up and running and out to families. I, I would like to just say that real fast on that, Zach, one more thing is that I know that this particular Supreme Court's facing a lot of heat. We're expecting some big uh, rulings to be released in the near future and the courts being accused of, you know, being overly religious. And this might add fuel to that. But the um, Trinity Lutheran case was founded. Uh, ruling did not happen with this court. And Espinosa versus Montana was mostly with this court. So it's not that the court is in this finding and in this ruling anyway, is heading you know, in the direction of, of favoring religious schools. This is a question that from the moment these programs uh, started, not Maine, not Vermont, they've been in place forever. But there have been people who have been trying to shut down parents' right to choose. And I'm sure that this is going to be spun as like, oh, the court's getting so religious. But that is not the case. This has been a very consistent finding that you cannot exclude organizations simply because they're religious. Now, so Susan, I think there was a case, and I'm, I could be wrong on this, but I think about 30 years ago there was a case the Ledoux schools were saying were had opened up the school to student groups after school and they f there was a christian student group in the due schools and they said no you can't you can't use the facilities and were roundly defeated saying that you can if you're going to yeah. open up your school facility to student groups you can't yeah. discriminate against a a religious student group yeah and in addition you know that we've talked about this i think on the podcast that 
a large number, I don't want to be misquoted on the actual number, um, dozens, let's say, of states have these so-called Blaine Amendments. And the Blaine Amendments are what we're kind of going after here. And the Blaine Amendment says that public monies can't go to religious schools. Missouri has a Blaine Amendment in our Constitution. But we need to remember that the time that James Blaine was trotting across the country trying to get states to pass the Blaine Amendment, um, it was an anti-Catholic sentiment. And it was that Secular Protestant schools, which most of the U.S. public school system at that time were Protestant schools, and they weren't considered secular because Protestantism was so universal that it wasn't a sect because everyone was Protestant. And then Catholics came in and started having Catholic schools, and those were called secular schools. And James Blaine then went around the country. Uh, he couldn't get the U.S. Constitution amended, so he got state constitutions amended to say, that money can't go to secular schools. And by that, he meant Catholic schools. And this was when, you know, the early 1900s when immigrants were coming in for from Italy and from Ireland. And it was basically racist and anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic. And now that very same thing, this Blaine Amendment is used to say, oh my God, the public schools are something up on a pedestal that is so sacred that we can't taint it with religion. And that is, that is just, uh, another angle and I get people come looking for angles to get rid of something they don't like, but a lot of people who are, uh, who benefit from the status quo public education, the bureaucracy running it, uh, they don't want to open it up to school choice. So they use this religious um, argument and you're right, David, it hasn't worked. You have to have equal protection and uh, you can't exclude groups just like what you're saying because they're religious. So it's a, to me, it's a straw man. I'm glad that the Supreme Court continues to confirm the finding that those schools can't be excluded because let's face it, those are the most, most of our, many of our private schools are religious. And so they're in place, they have teachers, they have empty seats in some cases, they're going to be the schools that will be able to first participate in these scholarship programs like Missouri's when it comes up. We can't wait for a, pub, a private school to open for the kids to go to. So the existing private schools are often religious and they cannot be excluded basically. And of course, James Blaine was from Maine, so it brings it all the way back to the Supreme Court decision from the other day. <laughs> I mean, is it a coincidence? I don't know. But Maine has done this forever. And it's if you think about it, Missouri could take a page out of this book. I mean, we have, uh, again, dozens. I don't know. The, I can't I don't want to quote an exact number of high schools with fewer than 100 students. Many of our very small communities are trying to run high schools and trying to teach kids to you know, be ready for college or career in the 21st century. And it's just beyond their capacity. But if you thought about the idea that you could simply tuition the kids out to either private or public schools and other districts, it would probably be a lot more efficient. And Maine and Vermont have just done it forever. Uh, other states, again, I think once we got the public school system under sort of like this, uh, the hold of this bureaucracy, they weren't going to allow that to happen anywhere else. But you know, parents are making a comeback. I believe that we will see a growth in these programs and a growth, you know, eventually the supply side will catch up. And I think you will have uh, additional private schools simply by virtue of the fact that these programs exist. David, in other news, gas is expensive. Thoughts? <laughs> it's, it's very expensive. That's my, that's my thought. Right. Um, it now costs more to buy the gas than it does to go in and get the soda and chips in the gas station for my kids. Uh, so uh, one of the proposed remedies 
for expensive gasoline uh, from the Biden administration is a federal gas tax holiday. And we're recording this on the day that uh, it was announced that President Biden would ask Congress for a federal gas tax holiday. I think three months, it's about 18 and a half cents would be the impact. What do you think about that? Well, and, and as part of it, he, he encouraged cities and states that have their own gas taxes to enact gas tax holidays alongside of it. I think this is just a terrible idea. Let's let's leave this aside the fact that it's just so obviously a cheap a cheap political stunt. It's let's just focus on the fact that it's also more importantly terrible public policy and remind people who just think there's a uh, anti-Biden bias that that we were when this same thing was proposed by Jefferson City Republicans, some Jefferson City Republicans during the recent session, that we were opposed to it here in, in Missouri as well. Uh, I certainly was. And it's, a, it's an even worse idea at the federal level and an even worse idea if you do it for all, in, for all at the same time. You know, I think I, I read the White House announcement. They said they're going to use other taxes to cover it. So, so you're going to use other taxes that aren't related to roads so now it becomes, in some small way, cheaper to use the roads, incentivizing more road usage while decreasing the taxes used to maintain those roads. And now we're going to pay for them for three months with unrelated taxes. This is just terrible public policy. And everybody left, right, and center who thinks about it knows it's terrible public policy. Uh, the, ro- the, the potholes don't go away because gas is $5 a gallon or higher in many other states. Uh, we still have the same maintenance needs, the same infrastructure needs for roads, bridges, and bike lanes, and the other uses that gas taxes go towards. Uh, it doesn't disappear, and stunts like this are, are the cheapest type of politics, and I think most Americans are going to see right through it. It was a bad idea when proposed by, Missouri Repu- by some Missouri Republicans. It's a bad idea when proposed by the President of the United States, and hopefully this goes uh, abs- absolutely nowhere. Well, and one of the initial reactions that I've seen out there is that this could result in a demand surge. And so any discount, the 18 cents, and if a state joins in more than that, um, would be evaporated pretty quickly if there's a demand surge from quote-unquote cheaper gas. And then we're, we have the gas tax holiday, and we're right back where we started with prices. Right. You know, the one one thing that can bring gas prices down is as it gets more expensive here's a crazy idea people drive less you know maybe ride your maybe ride your bike around your neighborhood to the coffee shop a little more maybe maybe carpool more since driving needs for people are going to be somewhat consistent maybe carpool more maybe combine all your errands into one trip i think that's what my family's doing you just make a point of trying to do all things in one errand as opposed to go out, do your errand, come home, go back out. I mean, I think average consumers make standard choices to try to reduce in maybe ways large, maybe ways small, a gas consumption. And that helps to bring prices down. There's certainly other things we can do to increase uh, our own energy output uh, many ways over that, that will help in both the short and long run. But this cheap, I'd keep calling it a cheap stunt, but that's what it is to act like like we don't have real maintenance needs so now we we use other taxes we either don't maintain the roads we either don't collect the money to maintain the roads or we use other unrelated taxes to do the same thing either way it's a terrible option and i just hope at both the state and even more importantly the national level that it does not pass
Just quickly, uh, just to take the temperature of the podcast, uh, Susan, do you feel like you, you've changed your driving habits at all since the price of gas has gone up? Maybe in not taking as many trips, but I live in a very rural area. So my grocery store is 10 miles away. Uh, it's just a lot harder to make adjustments. And I know some people commute and it's that can be difficult too. But, you know, it might change uh, car buying decisions away from gigantic SUVs and that type of thing too. And, and it does kind of trickle through to propane and some things that those of us in rural areas use too. But, um, you know, a temporary fix on that, that's not what anyone's looking for. We're looking for long-term solutions to bring inflation under control and stop printing money. So I agree. It's a, it's a gimmick Abigail, and it how might about make you? people happy for a short time and then, and then it's over. Are you driving less? I really can't drive any less. Um, I'm commuting in from the, the suburbs to, to work here most days. The one thing that I probably have changed with driving habits is I'm paying a lot more attention to how many miles per gallon I'm getting, sort of playing playing a little game with myself of how many how many miles I can get per gallon. I think I'm up to 33 right now in my little Kia. So that's, that's the habit I've changed, but I, I really can't change how much I drive, and I think that's an issue for a lot of people. And David, are you are you taking your own advice and biking with the family more? <laughs> we do, we do like to to bike with the family fun. We're not driving uh, much less. I'll say I my wife and I both live. My wife goes into the office a few days a week, works from home sometimes, but we don't have particularly long commutes. I I live just five. I it's just I just have a five minute drive to work really. So we live sort of in the inner suburbs. We don't. By most standards, we probably drive less than the average American family just because our of the life. Uh, my my car in particular gets very good gas mileage. Uh, my wife's main car is less so, but the little my little Mazda sports car. So, I, no, we're not making significant changes, but we're not as affected by by this as as many many other people, particularly people in a rural America who it's much much harder to try to drive less. And you mentioned bikes and you mentioned consolidating errands. What about electric scooters? Those might be a way for people to get around town unless you live in St. Louis, maybe. Abigail, what's going on in St. Louis with uh, electric scooters? So I think it was about two weeks ago now. um, The downtown and downtown west areas, there's now a complete and total ban on electric scooters in that area of downtown St. Louis. And it's because... They've had this ongoing issue with large groups, roving uh, roving groups of teenagers riding the scooters recklessly downtown. And that's apparently that's led to some violence. And so they banned the scooters, I think, on June 7th, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and, and so initially it was just a curfew, correct? Yes. So in May they had a curfew on the scooters. And I think that started at 7 or so. And then June 7th that switched over to they're, they're not allowed at all anymore in those two neighborhoods. And so we're immediately going to the this is why we can't have nice things approach that there. David, you've talked a lot about people maybe wanting to ride scooters to Cardinal games and get around downtown. Me. I want to ride scooters to Cardinal games. David Stokes wants to ride scooters to Cardinal games. Probably other people as well. But yes, me. I've got tickets to the game on Saturday and I'm going to be it's going to hit home when I park where I usually park and I'm not able to ride a scooter, a scooter. There, it's gonna. I'm, I'm mad now. Whoa, wait till you see me about one o'clock on Saturday. 
So, I, and my the the spirit of my question is, it, it seems like that we went from zero to sixty really quick. And that was there any sounds made about the curfew not working? Do we know how long the curfew was implemented before they went to stricter measures? Well, I'll let, leave that to Abigail. But I do on on your analogy, it's a scooter, so we really went from zero, zero to, to about ten really really <laughs> quick, right? Yeah, um, I think there was, well, there was about a month between the curfew and then the total ban. I couldn't really speak to how much noise people were making about the curfew not working. Obviously, there were ways in which it wasn't working because we still had the groups of teenagers and the violence issue downtown that was involving the scooters. I don't know how much people were talking about it, but, but clearly it was still the case after the May curfew that the scooters were still involved in some of that kind of thing. And has there been any timeline mentioned, or this is just a, for the foreseeable future, no scooters? I've heard both um, in a couple different Post-Dispatch articles. I've heard both for the foreseeable future, and I've heard in the original article from the 7th when they banned them that it was going to be about two weeks, and then city leaders were going to start evaluating something. But I haven't seen anything since then that they actually are evaluating anything or that they're talking about it in meetings I've seen a lot of, of opinion pieces about whether or not scooters are good, but nothing about whether we're actually going to make a decision on the city level about it. And it's such a good classic example of, you know, there's an issue with something, so let's ban it. Let's just ban it entirely, as opposed to, you know, I've, reading some of the, and Abigail can talk about this as well, reading some of the posts from critics of the scooters saying, you know, there's no regulation at all. They can be, go- they can be used on the sidewalk anywhere. They don't have to follow traffic laws. There's all these, you know, some of these critiques may be perfectly legitimate. So why doesn't the city just pass a, they, they do have a board of aldermen that is authorized to pass ordinances say that you have to follow traffic laws while riding on a scooter. You have to stop at a red light. You have to do that. And if you're an, if you're a, you have to be 16 to ride a scooter or put an age limit. There's things you can do. There's things that the companies are doing as well to look at helping to, to from a private sector part, step in and, and limit the, put some sensible limitations into it, such as it's proposed. I think they were proposing, now it's all moot since they've been banned, but they were going to stop the ability of one person to start a whole bunch of scooters all at one time, meaning so that one person with a credit card couldn't suddenly pay for pay for 10 and then the next you got a whole group of kids now look i've seen those groups of young people admit they they're riding rather dangerously down market avenue like it's a miracle somebody hasn't been substantially hurt yet on it and frankly that probably has happened and i'm just not aware of it so i'm not nobody's sitting here saying that there's not an issue that has to be enforced but to go to an outright ban is just such a a modern Let's take the simple, cheap, draconian solution and as opposed to actually trying to think it through and re- think it through and realize there's some good aspects to scooters as well. There's a reason why they're popular. I mean, they have a they have a need in urban areas like like downtown St. Louis and elsewhere. Um, all right. Clearly, St. Louis had a crime problem before the scooters showed up. Right. And now the scooters are gone. This crime problem is not going to be solved. Uh, we have a lot of work to do that. It's a distraction to say the problem is the scooters. The problem isn't the scooter. The problem is that people don't respect the rule of law, to your point, David. So, you know, if you're not going to stop at stop signs or enforce anything like that, then I guess scooters can get away from you. But if people now feel safer because there's no scooters, I don't know. Right. That was the thing that actually had me look into it in the first place was the Post-Dispatch article that came out the following 
the following Monday, I think, after there had been a whole weekend without, without scooters, was, you know, the scooters are gone from downtown and the police say there was a whole weekend without violence. And I was like, well, uh-huh. that kind of sounds like you're blaming the scooters. <laughs> there was definitely violence before the scooters and there probably mm-hmm. has been since, but... All right, yeah. well, staying in uh, St. Louis, David, Centene said they were going to build a, a civic center and an outdoor civic center and amphitheater. It came with a... Well, among, it, a no, among a number of things, including like an, an added sky, an added new office tower and, and everything. And it had this incentive package attached to it. And are we still getting uh, the civic center? We are not. Clayton is not getting the civic center, nor are they getting at least one of the new proposed uh, office towers that Centene had, had had promised. And I think there's some other things that aren't going to be done as as well. And I have no criticism of, of Centene here. And, and as long as Clayton now lives up to the contract and doesn't give out the tax incentive, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll say at least Clayton's doing the right thing now. But what I, what I love talking about here is that in the post, Post-Dispatch article, on it, Santine was quoted as saying, they're not going to do this, and the key phrase is, regardless of any incentives given. We're just not doing it. They've made a business decision that they're not going to do it. And what I love about that line is there's just so many studies out there that that show that these economic incentives are so much less important in business decisions than they're claimed to be at the start. Claimed to be by both the businesses that are asking for them, because of course, when you ask for them, you're going to say it's necessary. And even worse, claimed to be by the by the economic development uh, industrial complex, uh, which as Eisenhower warned against uh, in a similar, in a in a related industrial, military industrial complex years ago, they just sit there and say how important what they do is and what they, in fact, do in that economic development industry is a net negative for our society. So I love Santine saying, you know, whatever incentives you give us, we're just not going to do it. So let's take a lesson from that, everybody in Missouri, to that these incentives are have many, many, many flaws and a subsidy-based approach to economic development is a terrible approach. And let's just realize that among the many flaws in the argument, here's further evidence on one of those that they're just not as needed and important as businesses say they are up front. And let's use that along with a number of aldermen being bribed, alleged being charged for allegedly bribing, accepting bribes to give out these tax incentives similarly, just across the city line in the city of St. Louis. Let's, in the upcoming legislative session, uh, get some real serious reforms to how we do tax subsidies, tax credits, and tax abatements in the state of Missouri. Yeah, it's been a tough three, four weeks for economic development. I mean, this is this is really it turned into your busy time of year, actually. Well, I always I always knew I was right about everything we were saying about economic development because we have to back us up. We have history and economic analysis and basic common sense and and the fact that it you know why is it fair why is it even it doesn't work economically it's not fair it's bad politics it leads to potential corruption and when you get all this stuff sort of proving your point all at once yeah it's been a good couple weeks in in municipal policy at the show me institute uh and then one final thing before we we move to wrap up someone brought this up in uh, on a radio interview you were doing earlier this week and i thought it was an interesting point um this is 
one of just another kind of bundle of stories we've gotten over the last couple of years about Centene and, and they're, they're a big corporation in the state and in the city. Uh, outside of the tax incentive part of this, what is them pulling back from this project with the other stories that we know about? That, what does that make you feel about maybe their future in the state and the city? Well, that's, that's tough. I mean, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a business prognosticator at all. Uh, they Right, as they're decreasing investments, in, there's still an enormous presence in Clayton, and they're still investing money in Clayton. I have many people who work there who live right around us. Um, but they're also decreasing the promised investments in St. Louis and increasing investments in North Carolina, I believe. So, right, there are certainly concerns, uh, but I'm not in the business prognostication excuse me, field. I certainly hope they maintain a, a strong presence here, and I, I'm sure they sure they will. But they've their former CEO was not shy about stating how crime in the region was making it harder for them to attract attract employees to the, the St. Louis area and harder for them to feel like they could invest in, in our area. He was very open about those concerns, which are perfectly legitimate and I'm sure accurate in many respects. Yeah, that is uh, an unfortunate theme that we talk about a lot, crime and its uh, impact on the state and the city. And um, yeah, but now we don't have scooters. So it sounds like maybe we're on the upswing. Somebody should know. tell... Santine that they ban scooters in downtown and maybe they maybe they they'll cancel the North Carolina thing now and say all right we're putting it all back in, in St. Louis problem the solved scooter scourge is a the scalawags of scooters scourges are uh, solved yeah we'll work on the headline but yeah I think I think we're on to something I, right. I do think David I know you will do this but that that quote is so fascinating to me uh where they're like it has nothing to do with tax breaks because you know the law or the idea around doing these tax breaks is this but for but for the tax break a company wouldn't do wouldn't invest wouldn't build the thing wouldn't do this wouldn't do that and i like how Santine is just like nah there's no but for there's well, just a no <laughs> so as somebody who's probably read more tiff reports and tiff applications and other subsidies than just about anybody uh you know they all use, it's not like they all use the same language every time. It's not like sure. the, one of the big myths out there in this is that when they hire these urban planning agencies, economic development companies to 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 do their should we allow this TIF in insert in random city X that that urban planning agency does some big comprehensive analysis to determine whether a, a TIF should be allowed. They don't do anything. I mean, they have this they do the same they take a few bad pictures of the area. They write the same lines, the same garbage, top to bottom in every one of these cases, and say, and say yes, they passed the but four test. There's no, there's no actual work in it. Like a, a grade school kid could do this level of work that these, that these urban planning agencies do to tell their their high paying clients that they deserve the tiff. And that happens around. I'm not picking on any one uh, applicant here, but. You know the the level of work there is it's just the same old garbage every time. All right, Susan, what are you uh, keeping an eye on over the next week? I'm looking into the uh, Desi budget for the year, going through the budget bills still, and um, tracking the new legislation as the governor signs it to be ready for this fall. David, 
I'm going through some data to try and compare uh, from 2021 assessment increases across the state of Missouri to what, what level of assessment increases did we see and what level of uh, tax property tax decreases did we see to offset that assessment increase. So I'm hoping to have some, uh, some reports, blog posts, and the like to share with that in the next couple of weeks. And Abigail. I'm working with Susan a little bit on going through some school board budget data uh, from around the state. And then beyond that, I will be keeping an eye on whether or not anything does eventually happen with the scooters downtown. All right, great. Well, uh, thank you all for listening. Plenty more at showmeinstitute.org. And Susan, David, and Abigail, thank you very much. <laughs>